Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. Colin, looking forward to this interview today. Why is that, Reed? Well, as our audience will hear, so much of what he talks about is something that I feel deeply in my bones as a former instructor at AU. So the interview today is with Captain Adam Brown about SOS. And I wanted to talk to Adam in the first place because we need to help our audience understand what Squadron Officer School is, what SOS is, why it exists, but more importantly, how it is changing and evolving within the COVID environment. So much like everything else in our world right now, these institutions and these things that we've all taken part of and will continue to take a part of in the future have to change because of the way things are right now. You can't bring 700 captains from across the Air Force and have them all in one room now. That's just asking for trouble, right? And so SOS has to change. And I wanted to highlight that here for our audience. And I think Adam did a great job doing that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, why don't we turn it over to you and Adam, Colin? All right. Adam Brown, welcome to the show. We are super excited to have you. You just let me know that you go by Lex. And you also informed me that you're not going to tell me why you're called that. But let's just let the audience know it has something to do with Lex Luthor, right? That's right. But, you know, I imagine that much of our audience is a little bit younger than you and me and probably don't have much of an idea of who Lex Luthor is. Please, from your background as a historian, who is Lex Luthor and why is he important? Why should our audience know about him? So Lex Luthor, he is the enemy of Superman. He is just a huge brain that puts his family's wealth to the single goal of destroying Superman. And so that is not necessarily why I am called uh, Lex Luthor, <laughs> or at least I hope I hope not. I hope that's not the origins of why I was called it. Oh, but, come on. Uh, you, aren't you an evil mastermind with a huge brain and tons of money? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about any of that. Uh, I know that I, I look, I look similar to him. I mean, we both have some pretty shiny heads. I don't know. From my perspective, that's about as, as close as we get. All right, man. Well, welcome Lex. We're excited to have you here on the show. I'm going to turn it over to you here to introduce yourself and give you uh, our uh, audience an idea of who you are, where you're from, what led you to join the Air Force, how you got in, that sort of thing. No, I appreciate it, Colin. So I am originally from uh, Arkansas. So uh, my hometown is Fayetteville, Arkansas. 
which I graduated from the University of Arkansas as an ROTC cadet. What'd you study? I studied history. So it kind of comes full circle now that I'm getting my PhD in history now, but um, I got my degree in history and then uh, commissioned. So I've been kind of my Air Force path. I went to San Angelo as an intelligence officer. Then from there, I went to Moody. And really, I got a really awesome experience there with working with the combat search and rescue guys in the A-10s as well, and then did a little bit with the expeditionary cops that are on the other side of the base. But I claim that was my first assignment was working with the PJs, the H-860s, and then the HC-130Js. The big ladies are, are who I call home because, you know, spent a little bit of time up at the operational sports squadron, and then I went to when they they claim me as one of their own and actually one of the guys that's in SOS with me he just got here is an old old friend of mine from back in the squadron so it's it's funny how those things come full tilt and then for Moody I got a chance to deploy out to uh, southeastern Turkey and kind of help my combat search and rescue guys you know really provide some cover on Operation Inherent Resolve from there I went on the other side of the country and became part of Nellis. Originally Creech working with the RPAs up there or the, the drones up there and then transferred down to Nellis and worked on the signals intelligence support to those RPAs out there. And then also uh, some other cool ISR stuff. And then I drug my wife who I met from Georgia all the way out there. And then we found ourselves right back here in Montgomery after a glorious deployment to Afghanistan where I was working with the headquarters up there. But yeah, and here I am here at SOS with uh, a wife, three boys and three dogs. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's been a, it's been a ride and that's, that's my air force journey so far. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. That's so awesome that you as an Intel officer have had that unique perspective working with the special ops side of the Air Force, especially the CSAR combat search and rescue mission. There's some pretty incredible experiences attached to that. Oh, absolutely. It's um, the thing that I love most about that community is just the just do it attitude. And I kind of adopted that from that. It's like at the end of the day, it's, we have to go get that guy or gal that's on, down on the, on the ground and get him back because, you know, we saw it in OIR, especially the brutality on the ground. So it kind of painted us a picture of like, this isn't somebody who uh, adheres to the Geneva Convention when it comes down to it. And so the, at the time is of the essence feel when we were down there was always surrounding us. But it's also, I mean, you had some of the most sharpest individuals there, you know, the most tenacious individuals, as you would expect from, from that crowd. But it, there's not just one specific experience that I could point to because there was just, my brain is just flooded with all the memories that are coming back now of all the, just the awesome experiences that came from that. Oh yeah. Well then a lot of those things need to remain classified for various reasons. And, you know, would love to be able to talk more about that stuff, but obviously cannot. So let's shift gears to what it is that we are here to discuss today. The Squadron Officer School, you are 
an SOS instructor. How long have you been there? So I have been here since November, so not quite a full year yet. But you find that uh, most of the people in at least my squadron, at at this point, everybody shifted out. So it's like four or five of us that are, are remaining that haven't even been here a full year yet. You're you're the old guy. Yeah, it's crazy to think about a year. You know, normally you'd associate maybe a two, maybe a year and a half. You know, you start becoming the old guy, but not less than a year. Well, cool. In the time that you have been there, you've seen the old structure of how SOS operated, and now things are different because and adapted because of the uh, coronavirus, you know, COVID nineteen, and just like everything else on planet earth sos going forward is going to be different and so we wanted to come together here today to talk about well, one what is sos why does it exist but then also kind of paint the picture for our audience on what those changes have been within sos and what it, it may look like for students and instructors sometime in the future Gotcha. So why does SOS exist? That is a historical question if I haven't even, if I've never heard one, but in the, in the sake of time. So SOS is the first primary military education opportunity that all junior air and space officers will go through or have the opportunity to go through. Unlike some of your other developmental education opportunities that officers will encounter later in their careers. This is the one that's guaranteed 100% opportunity. Right. What is meant by 100% guaranteed opportunity? So 100% guaranteed opportunity is that if life happens, right, you know, there are going to be circumstances that some officers can't go in residence for whatever reason. But it that it, but it's a choice. So every officer that wants to go to SOS gets to go to SOS. So that's what I mean by 100% opportunity at, compared to those that you know want to go to ACSC or Air Command and Staff College. But not everybody gets to go in residence to Air Command and Staff College. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. So being a student at SOS is not. A competitive thing. You don't get boarded. You don't get selected. Everybody at some point during their career, they have the opportunity to be there in residence there on campus at Maxwell Air Force Base. And if they are unable to do that for some reason, then they can still complete the curriculum, but through an online learning format, distance learning. Right. And so that's the student side. And then going forward, there's two types of instructors that are going to be going forward. Those that are those captains and majors that are boarded that want to go and just do the SOS instructor gig. And we've got some really sharp individuals coming in over the next six months to a year that really just that pure passion for teaching. And then you have the air command and staff college fellows who are those students that are going on to their next level of professional military education, but they're going to take a year on the front end to do an instructor gig down at the squadron officer school. Yeah. So the, the first category there, they are selected through the OIRSD program that we have covered here on the podcast previously. 
as you mentioned, that has attracted some people who are passionate for the teaching side of being an officer. I didn't know about the ACSE Fellows Program. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I can't speak too much on the fellowship program because the only part of the fellowship program that I'm intimately familiar with is the fellowship A, because I know there's an A and a B, and I'm not too familiar with the B, but the A is, you know, you get these really just incredible individuals that are coming to share their, their knowledge and their experience with the students. And so it's really a awesome experience to be able to work with them and, and be able to work with just the amount of specialties across the spectrum. Like, you know, similar to when, you know, you and I went through SOS, it's, that's kind of what makes SOS the experience is the ability to, to network and get to know people from across the Air Force and Space Force now with different backgrounds and different specialties and kind of ask those questions that you've always wanted to ask. Like, why does finance take a day or, you know, (laughs) or, you know, just ask some of those, those really, you have no idea, like, and you don't really know anybody in that career field that can really answer those questions. And that's kind of another benefit of SOS is you're on the air university circle and the senior mentor program where we bring in, you know, senior members over at Air War College or senior members across the campus to come and connect with the students is just invaluable. As well as the senior NCOs over at um, Gunter Annex who are going through their own education system, but get a chance to come over and talk to the students from a senior NCO perspective. What are some of the questions that they may have that they've never really been able to ask a senior NCO for whatever reason? Yeah, no, absolutely. So many great things that can happen there at and come out of uh, the experience at at Squadron Officer School. So let's just take a quick step back and pull on that a little bit more. You you mentioned that SOS exists to to be that first and primary PME opportunity for company-grade officers. So what is the ultimate purpose of the Squadron Officer School and and having all CGOs pass through this education process? What is it that the Air Force and now the Space Force is trying to accomplish there? Well, what we're trying to get after, like the overall like purpose mission is really to enhance air and space minded individuals and leaders. Because when we enhance that quality, you know, they're primed to prevail when they get into that competitive joint environment, especially when you talk about great powers competition. So that's when SOS instructors and faculty and everybody in that building goes in, like our main goal every single day is, is like, how do we get better so we can provide a better level of education for, for these captains that are going to go on and be a part of that competitive environment. Okay. Yeah. So the, the mission here to enhance air and space-mindedness. What is meant by air and space-mindedness? I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I'm curious from your perspective for, as an SOS instructor, when you are preparing your, your lessons and discussions with your students as well as back in the office with your fellow instructors, what are you all talking about? What do you mean when you say air and space-mindedness? What we mean by air and space-mindedness is that 
Air Force officers and space officers are in a super unique position because we don't view the world in the same way that Army officers or Marine officers or Navy officers. For good reason, by the way. (laughs) Yes. That's not a knock on our Army and our Navy brethren. That's just to say that we need Army officers to think like Army officers, Navy officers to think like Navy officers, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, that's the whole point is, you know, when you get all those different individuals, all of those different joint officers together, they bring to bear the full force of what makes us lethal as a military. And that is, you know, not only our technology, but and not only our training, but our ability to think in so many directions and go to that same, you know, same cadence towards an objective. So air and space mindedness is you're thinking on a whole nother level. And especially with space, when you talk about the concerns there, because it's a whole nother frontier. I probably misquoted that Star Trek, or I guess it's the final frontier, but either way, it's an entirely different way of thinking. And so what we, how do we enhance that is, is we take a look at for joint warfare, we take a look at that and how the Air Force plays into that and really having no kidding discussions about it. And then we, you know, we talk about leadership and ethics and probably some of the similar things that our other service branches would talk about at their different professional military education events. And then you get into strategic design. And so strategic design kind of makes up the, you know, how do you think about problem sets? And so that's with all three of those in mind you know, that's what enables that bare mindedness and that space mindedness is, you know, how do we think outside the box or outside the atmosphere in this case? And really one of the things that I tell my students the first day that they arrive is I put blue Kool-Aid packets out on the, on the desk there. And I tell them that's the only blue Kool-Aid that I'm going to be giving you for this, because those discussions are what sharpen the edge for our professionals as they go out the door, because then they're going to be encountered with that esoteric question of why am, you know, why, I don't know, like, I don't understand the Air Force, right? And that's, or maybe they've had that question and it definitely come up in class or they don't understand this element of whatever. Those conversations from 14 other individuals in the classroom, myself included, you know, help push that knowledge and that education down the road for them. So that way they better understand like the, the context that they're living as an air force officer. That's really good. So just to summarize here, air and space mindedness is getting officers to think in terms of what the air force and the space force are capable of in air and in space. Whereas the Navy is focused on what they're capable of in and around the water in the maritime mission. And the army, what do they do on land? And each of those different things have their own opportunities and constraints. And combining them all together makes us all much more effective in carrying out the objectives on behalf of the United States in that joint and purple environment. No, absolutely. And another thing to add on to that 
I had the opportunity to do a book club with Simon Sinek. Actually, you know, is on YouTube. He did a set, set of series on his uh, uh, one of his books, and I asked the question: How do we, as armed service members and officers, you know, translate the why down to the junior officer? I had my own pers- you know perspective on on that. I just kind of wanted to see what he had to say on that. And I didn't expect him to answer it. Like I, I'm, he had like, probably, I don't know how many like questions were being asked, but he specifically went into what separates the air force from everybody else is that they're innovators. You know, that air mindedness, he didn't call it that, but he's like their ability to look at problems in a different way. That's what connects every single member of the air force in that way is that not everybody flies planes not everybody isn't you know a battlefield airman but everybody in the services you know that culture requires them to think outside the box no i really appreciate that i like the idea of thinking of air-mindedness in terms of innovation in that we are operating and thereby thinking in a different environment unconstrained by what we usually have to deal with here on the ground or on the sea. Very cool. So the whole goal here of SOS is to enhance that perspective. So how do we enhance it? What do we do? So other than like everything that the instructors talk about on a day to day, our commandant has made it his mission to make sure that the rigor and the the currency, I guess, is the best way to, is worth it. And what I mean by that is, is that the feedback that the students give to SOS is compiled, and it's not one of those, you know, drop boxes where you, you leave feedback and you know nobody does anything with it. We take it, we take it all into consideration and figure out, okay, so these are some of the consistent things that students really enjoy that also we need to accomplish per the um, Secretary of Defense's guidance. And then these are some of the things that the students really didn't like how we did that. And it's like, all right, well, how do we get after that? So it's, you know, I've, I've had students come in and they're like, oh, well, I've been told. And I go, well, I don't know what you've been told, but how about you're here, you tell us what you think about the class this time. And so that rigor, that, um, that non-stasis attitude and just getting after, you know, giving them the best education that we possibly can is how we kind of sharpen the edge for them. But also with other things such as like think tank, where you're competing to be on this team to solve a specific problem with different coaches coming in from all across SOS. And then some other of the senior mentors that are also coming in to kind of give their their thoughts on where they're at in the process. And then another one is the Air University Advanced Research Elective, which is still selective, but it is composed of the different communities within the Air Force. So an example being, we had an ISR, AUAR elective, where we would take in a certain amount of students And then we would talk about specific problems and their suggestions and solutions in a really, really rigorous way 
for whatever that problem was. And, but they also kind of go outside the specific specialty community. So we also have a, a diversity and inclusion advanced research elective, which led to the upgrade of the maternity uniform, different things of like that, those different touch points, which improves the service, but also kind of gets people thinking outside of the box. And then another th- cool thing, and I'll make this plug because I know he'd be too humble to do it otherwise, is that our we have a th- uh, part of that same program, the AUAR program, we have a 3D printing elective. And so what they were able to do during all of the COVID is make masks for the local community. Like 3D print, no kidding, at hardly any cost to like the local responders in Montgomery. But it's, it's it goes way much more than that. And you're talking about people that have gone into that elective and and are starting to put things like different attachments that weren't there, but make the, the air crews lives better. And the C-130, the, the F-35, I mean, the sky is the limit with that. And they've done some really cool stuff. But that's just kind of a, an example. But then also you have just regular electives, which are the instructor-led electives that based on what that instructor's you know strengths are or what they're interested in teaching the students you know you have everything from how can you be a better leader as an introvert in the air force we had an instructor teach that as well as some in-depth civil war battles specifically i mean those history nerds so like i i really enjoyed those but it's just it's all over the place with what you know, instructors are giving back. And so that's kind of how we get back or get after the mission. That's really cool. The, the one thing that I, I want to highlight from what you were just explaining is how important it is for you to not prejudge your SOS experience based on what somebody has told you from what they did in the past. Because SOS is always changing always adapting and even talking to somebody who went maybe just two or three classes ago is not going to give you the complete picture on what things are going to be like for you as a student, especially now as things continue to evolve and change in the COVID environment and everything post COVID, right? Oh, absolutely. So let's kind of go back and paint that picture of how things are are operating now, how things have changed in this new environment. What can students and anybody who's who's coming in as an instructor can expect being part of SOS in the COVID environment? So this next class is entirely virtual, but it's it's your TDY in place attending it on virtual. If you've gone through a online master's program or some type of higher level education online program, it has some of the same parts, but it's not going to have the same feel because we're still, we're still going to be meeting with students on zoom talking about what the last couple of days of whatever the material is that you've gone over. And so that is a, for the, for the instructors, you know, kind of shifting our mentality to teaching and instructing in that is a little bit different, but it's, it is good in the sense of we get to have that in our tool belt. And for the student's perspective, it's an opportunity to do something that no other class before them has done. 
And it's a good chance to learn from people that are actually going to be in those different locations across the world or within their time zone or, how, you know, whichever, who's ever in their class. And then after that class, it's, right now we're working through the process. We don't have a decision on where or how we want to structure that next class after that um, because, because it's so dynamic. But there will be an in-residence part. How that looks, it'd probably be a little bit smaller class sizes, maybe um, two goes to kind of limit the classroom impact. That's what we are trying to work out right now, but it'll never be the same in which in one aspect you can look at it is it's good because that means we've, we've done it. And we know, you know, the students that go through will have an experience that's not like any of the others. And it'll be an experience. Hopefully they can take forth as they grow as Air Force officers, because when they, it's not going to be limited to just SOS. If we get another shutdown in a year because we still haven't found the vaccines. How are they able to do that within their own work environment? You know, you got to continue to train in whatever way you can. So hopefully, you know, the students are taking a time to kind of take a step back. It's like, what can I pull from this? Yeah, for sure. I like that there's still that goal to get everybody to have the in-residence experience because that is really important that is one of the the biggest takeaways that i took from my sos experience is the really critical important in-person discussions that that happened with my class that bonding that happened with them because we shared a physical space together both in the classroom itself and being able to to read expressions, body language, and that sort of thing as we're talking about some of these really difficult topics, both on the strategic side of the Air Force, but also on the social side of things. You know, you mentioned diversity and inclusion earlier. Those are really critical discussions that are best done in person so that you can get what's being said both verbally and non-verbally, right? No, absolutely. And it's just the common comment out of everybody, no matter what was going on during your SOS experience, the buddies that I made at SOS, I still keep in contact with them today. It's that social aspect that helps you learn because everybody has a different experience that they're coming from. And that's, you're learning from, you know, your wingman there who's actually seen what it's like in Germany or knows in depth what the process is for whatever question you may have. Just those experiences make SOS what it is. And those connections are, you can talk about it all day, how important they are, but it's something that will never be cut from SOS because of the importance it has. So what it's going to look like, broad strokes for both student and instructor, only the future knows. But what I can say is, is that for everybody who hasn't gone through SOS and is tuning in with us today, you know, what I can tell you is, is that you've got a, a group of solid heavy pipe hitters who are, who are giving it their all. So that way they can, you know, have you walk away knowing either a little bit more than you did prior to when you went or giving, you know, at least knowing the fact that we've done everything we can to cultivate um, your neural network or your social network 
at least with them as you go away, because social connections are, you know, we've already talked about the importance of it. But for those that I'm coming up, I've had a couple of my friends and other people who have been referred um, to me asking questions about SOS and what do they need to do if they're interested in becoming an SOS instructor. I would say the first thing you need to do, just as you would with any other opportunity that's out there, is think about why you want to do it. You know, really, what it, what would your purpose be um, going to SOS? I think it's awesome, but my awesome is different than your awesome. Yeah, so that, there's that Simon Sinek again. Start, you know, yeah. start with why. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he's awesome. But he's right, though. Like life is so much different for every single individual. So really what I've told them is like, really think about why you want to be an SOS instructor for those that have a desire to uh, have an academic career in the air force. Awesome opportunity for those that want to lead or have that leadership experience. I mean, you're talking about every, well, now it's every five to five and a half weeks you're leading and facilitating a course for 14 different individuals that are either in your peer group or you have, if you're a major, you're having 14 captains every single five and a half weeks. So that gives you just a ton of leadership opportunity to engage and kind of develop the future leaders. There's lots of different reasons why you want to go to SOS, but When what I ask of everybody who's considering that is be motivated to come and come with a growth mindset, be knowing that it's okay. You know, if, if you fail, I had my, uh, an old commander who gave me that old sage wise advice of, uh, you know, he's like, Lex, I know you're upset. And I was, I failed on something and he goes, but is anybody going to die? And I go, uh, no, sir, no, nobody's going to die. He's like, well, I'd say it's a pretty good day. And so I've kind of taken that mentality of it's okay. It's okay if you fail, but as long as you fail while you're trying, you'll learn something from it and you'll get better. And that's kind of, that's a part of growth mindset. So when you come to SOS, you're going to grow. You just have to make sure that your mindset's in the right place for it to grow. And then the other piece of that is, is, just make sure that your leadership knows like early, early in the process, just like any other opportunity, because if they know they can advocate for you. And another piece of this is, is that if you want to go to SOS and you know, somebody that's already there, make sure that they know that. So that way, you know, the SOS leadership now has a you know, a connection made with that. And that's not an end all be all, but it's, you know, those individuals that are, you know, voicing up and it kind of goes back to making your voice heard that you really want to go to SOS because there are people that truly want to come to Maxwell and be a part of this community. So the last piece of that is, is find your own voice. We talked about earlier, you know, in the session that what makes every instructor great at SOS is what they bring to the team. You know, for me, I am a total history nerd. And so when we come to talk about specifically historical foreign policy, 
I'll sit and talk for two hours and give you all sorts of examples. But then you have those that, that are, you know, air crew who can give you no kidding experiences from when they've been to X, Y, and Z, or you have space professionals that are giving their, their perspectives. And especially when you talk about, you know, the new space elective that SOS is incorporating into the curriculum for those new space professionals for them to grow. So whatever your voice is, make sure you hone in on that. And then if you want to know what we're reading or what we're telling to the students, there's a couple of good reading lists out there. One is chief staff of the air forces reading list, which is always a good one Um, on Goodreads. There is a actual, um, a SAS reading list, part one and two, because they read probably 120 books or more during that, or those advanced degrees. And then you, you go on and you find all the different reading. And even on the, um, the Maxwell page, they have some of the, the curriculum and syllabuses from some of the older Air Command Staff College lessons that you can really take a look at and see what they previously read. It might not be what they're reading now, but it's still valid. So that would be my advice that I'd give to the people that are really, really interested in SOS is just make sure that your voice is heard. You're, you know, you do the reading and then make sure that everybody knows that you want to go to SOS. Yeah, for sure. I kind of see a theme across each of these different pieces of of advice that you're providing to someone who wants to be an SOS instructor. But let's also say that these same things should be incorporated by someone who wants to go to SOS as a student. They're the exact same things. So the, the theme that I'm seeing here is finding your reason, starting with why, that you want to be there and what you're going to contribute slash take away from from your SOS experience, either as a student or as an instructor. Recognizing that it's okay for you to kind of have that quote unquote selfish take on it, that you're going to come away from SOS as a better person, as a better leader, because of your integration with other officers, either as a student in the, the, the 14 others that's in that classroom with you, or as a, an instructor in that you're seeing a different class every five weeks, you're going to be better. And it's okay for you to have that perspective. But I want to highlight the difference between finding your voice, which is really important, versus having an ax to grind. There is a fine line between those two. And I just wanna give you the opportunity to comment on that. Oh, the ax to grind. So we, you see this quite a bit and I, I probably had an ax to grind too when I, when I went to SOS, I mean, just, I mean, everybody has one. (laughs) That's right. We, we all have multiple. In fact, you you see my back wall. I've got an entire lineup of axes to grind. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So it kind of, it goes back to growth mindset. One of the things that I tell my students day one, I hope you found your why. I hope you found your voice, your passion, you know, by this point, and maybe I can help you see what that passion is, but you need everything that you do in life, especially at SLS. In this case, you need to come with a sense of humbleness 
in the sense of how do I grow? So for those hot button items that students bring, how I kind of break that down day one is I ask the students, what do you, what do you guys expect from your flight mates? Yeah, I ask them whatever their expectations are for the, that they put on themselves. That's what I'm going to hold them to in addition to like the, you know, the schoolhouse standards, but really that hot button issue, you know, when we get, you know, setting the expectations and coming at it with a growth mindset, but also understanding like, okay, let's do some self-reflection, you know, understanding that event for the student, because if you got to think, if it's such a hot button item that they come into the classroom and they're they're trying to click the buzzer every time to throw that out there, then it's it's probably something that that does need to be addressed. But it's also a, a thing for the students to realize. Let's reflect on this. Kind of getting into that emotional intelligence piece of what makes us leaders is understanding why we feel the way that we do about certain things, and then also you know, realizing how that makes us come off to the rest of the world and how do we move forward? No, yeah, I love that. I think that the difference between finding your voice and having an ax to grind is that growth mindset. I think you nailed it on the head. Well, very cool. There's so much more that we could talk about with SOS, but I want to shift gears here and give you the opportunity to wax eloquent from the historical nerd mindset. You have recently started a podcast and I've listened to it. I think it's fantastic. And I want you to be able to share with our audience what you're trying to accomplish with the 7 a.m. history podcast. Yeah, it's 7 a.m. history, your history on the go. So I am a huge podcast nerd. Some of my favorite podcasts are Dan Carlin's Hardcore History and then the stuff you missed in history class. And then at the same time, you know, you have what I'm doing for coursework. And then for SOS experience, they all kind of converged on one. And, you know, I I was talking to some of the other instructors, some really close confidants of mine. And I, I, you know, I was just like, should I do this? You know, I, I could probably opt out and say, listen, I've got all this stuff going on in my life. Why would I put out a podcast? And then a couple of role models of mine, which is my mother and my sister. Um, I was talking to them and they go, you absolutely should, because that would give us something to listen to on the way to work. (laughs) It's so kind of the difference that my podcast has with some of the other ones is that with American history podcasts, it's hit or miss. It really is. I mean, you have some really good ones out there that are focusing on social and um, very ideological type historical things. And and then the ones that kind of go off of a more chronological view. I mean, it, you can just tell that they're just reading a script. I, and I feel like if somebody's driving to work, they want you to tell the story because we all love a good story. And especially if it's grounded in historical fact. Or at least that's that's my opinion, anyway. Um, so that's what I try to do. And so that when I got started, I was like, okay, I got to do a lot of research. But seven a.m. history is for that twenty-five to thirty-five minute drive to work. And right now, we just got done with the first American War 
which is the War of 1812. I don't consider the Revolutionary War the first American war because it's uh, we're technically we're it's that struggle, it's that saga to break away from Great Britain. And so I start with the War of 1812 because it's not a really well-known war by Americans, all right? We know Andrew Jackson. We know that the British burned down DC. Um, but there's not a whole lot of other context to that. And the Star Spangled Banner. And the Star Spangled Banner. Yes, absolutely. Which that was so fascinating, you know, to find the nuts and bolts and all the, the key story elements of how that came to be. But so I start with the War of 1812 and I break it down into 25 to 35 minute segments. So we just wrapped up with the implications of the War of 1812. And so going forward and I'm going to be looking at things like um, the Battle of the Thames, the Battle of Lake Erie, uh, the U.S. Constitution, which that one has special significance for me because I was deployed over there with the 1st Armored Division, which gets their heritage from Old Ironsides, the U.S. Constitution. So which I always find fascinating when you find heritage, when Army units is claiming heritage from a name. And then Tecumseh. I'm more excited to talk about Tecumseh. Uh, after doing the research for the War of 1812, just because of the impact that that man had. And then the next series is going to be on the Mexican-American War. And if you think about it, that's the war that a lot of the Civil War generals during the time, that's where they gnashed their teeth at, was in that, in that war. So that's going to be really fascinating. But the overall purpose of why I do it is, one, to give people like my mom, my dad, my, my friends, you know, the ability to listen to some, some history on their way to work. But also it, it makes me a better historian to be able to tell that story. And then what I, I find fascinating for me personally is that as I do the research over time, it only makes me a better SOS instructor because I'm able to, like, we talk about things today that we think are are incredibly modern but then you you look back and it's like yeah is it though when you talk about economic instruments of power is it uh is it really that new of a, a, a 20th century 21st century concept i here's some examples but i find it incredibly fascinating and i've just been very very overwhelmed with the the support that i've received from my listeners and even at SOS, I mean, I brought it up to our learning sciences and technology division and they, they're like, how can we help you? And I was like, that's awesome. And the thing about podcasts is, is that just like this, the connections, you know, it's a network of just so many different ideas and connections that are being made across the spectrum. And so where you can find 7am history is on uh, Google Podcast, Stitcher Podcast, Podcast Addict. Uh, right now, we're we're trying to work the artwork to get on Apple Podcasts good side. So, but those where you can find us, and then really, we're also on Facebook. We're also on Instagram, um, and it's it's one of those projects that over time will probably make it a little bit more engaging for the audience. You know, because the amount of comments that we've been getting. And emails that we've been getting has just been like overwhelming to the sense of like, all right, I've got to be a little bit more methodical about this. I don't know. It is just a fascinating world 
you know, for everybody that's listening out there, it's uh, it's 7am history at gmail.com and look us up, give us feedback. Cause you know, just like SOS, you know, it's the only opportunity that I've found where I, I really can sharpen my skill sets and grow not only as a historian, but also as a, as a leader and a storyteller. Oh yeah, for sure. What you've covered so far, especially about the war of 1812 has been really fascinating and being able to see the parallels between what was going on then to what's going on now. uh, You kind of already mentioned it. We think that what we're experiencing now has never been seen before, but that's not true at all. And I want to let you use that as kind of the lead into the next question of why should officers be students of history? How can we use that understanding that history repeats itself to be more effective in the profession of arms, and especially in that realm of air and space, knowing that that particular piece of it is actually pretty new. So how, how can we as air and space officers be more effective as students of history? So as students of history, understand that the decisions that leaders make during those times of, of war really struggle. You know, they're not so different. The time may be different. The equipment may be different. The landscape may be different. But how those leaders made those decisions you can apply those, you know, those methodologies, those reflections to your own decision-making. So an example would be Thomas Jefferson's decision not to go to war with Great Britain when they started levying those economic sanctions against the United States. And then soon after France did it as well. I just want to make sure I put that out there for all my British friends that are listening in. For right now. They, they've given me a lot of grief, but you know, you see like, well, this happened, you know, and then you talk about, you know, the altercations in the, in the sea right along, right along the Virginia coast. It could have been very easy for president Jefferson to get into that mindset of like, no, we're kicking you out. So understanding why he didn't is just as important as, why president madison did you know so always going back to the why right even in historical context so air force officers can still glean lessons from you know not only our heritage but history in general i mean you know and it's never just a black and white answer you know there's so much complexity and operating in the gray is more important now than it ever will be right yeah for sure that is something that I really want to be on the lookout for is what was the situation and can I learn from that, that leaders or that individual's decision-making process and can I glean something out of that and apply it to what I'm going through right now? Can I learn from them and how they operated in the gray? Like, like you said, having, a less than perfectly clear picture on exactly what's going on. And yet they were still able to make a decision, press forward and and be successful, or maybe they weren't successful. And what can I learn from that as well? I think that's where we as officers need to be approaching this from is 
what can we learn from that person's experience so that we can try to replicate their success or avoid the mistakes that they made in the past? Yeah, can't recommend enough that our listeners check out your podcast and become students of history in any capacity. Whatever their engagement level is with history, they're going to be better for it. So I really appreciate what you're trying to do and putting that type of information out there and making it digestible during a commute and approaching it from a a different perspective, especially given that you are an Air Force officer. It makes it all the, the more applicable to our audience who are interested, who are either already officers or interested in becoming one. Absolutely. Sky is the limit. You know, you just kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? Is you got to find that voice and you got to find that passion. And, and I really appreciate you having me out on the episode today and just be able to share my story. Absolutely, man. Every officer has a story and want to give them the opportunity to share it. So uh, we're going to wrap up here. I've got two more questions for you. First of all, if somebody wants to get in touch with you about being a student or an instructor at SOS, or maybe they want to talk to you about your podcast. What's the best way to get in touch with you? So 7amhistory at gmail.com. Is, that's my podcast email. But if you want to reach out to me about questions with SOS or being an instructor or anything that deals with that, use that as well. Okay, great. Very cool. All right, last question. You ready for this? Go. All right, Lex, what does it mean to be an officer? So what it means to be an officer for me, is three things. It's one, being a part of the team and taking care of your wingman. That you're leading the sons and daughters of the nation that have come to raise their right hand, you know, and you're leading them to do the mission that you also raised your hand for, which is to defend the Constitution. And in that instance, being self-aware of who you are, being mindful of who they are, and then knowing the environment around them is paramount. But then lastly, growth mindset helps develop us as leaders to grow every single day, no matter what the experience is. And so continue learning is a part of being an Air Force officer. I love it. Thank you for sharing with us. So many wonderful things that you're involved with, Lex. I really appreciate what you're doing for the Air Force and for, for all of us out here. Anything else that you want to say to the audience before we get out of here? No, just similar thing I would tell them on my podcast. You know, thanks for tuning in today. Okay, Colin, I got, I, oh my goodness. I cannot tell you. There, there are three things that Adam talks about that I feel so deeply and profoundly I just got to, I got to lead off with these. Okay. So coming from being an instructor, especially there at OTS, there are three things he mentioned that I, yes, are absolutely true. And this will be the case for anybody who's going into an instructor position. So the first is the access that you get to people with different AFSCs and different ranks and education in a teaching environment like that is unparalleled. You're, you're never going to get that anywhere else. And it's fantastic. I shared a cube wall with a security forces operator right next to a PA officer, right next to a maintenance officer, right next to another cop. And, and it was just fantastic. I learned so much from them and from their experiences. 
And he mentions how great that is. And it, it is absolutely true. Completely, completely agree. Absolutely love that. Yeah. And that is replicated in the student experience as well at SOS. And that's kind of the point of going there is that you get to rub shoulders for those five and a half weeks or however long it is at the time that you attend, you get to spend that time with officers outside of your career field and, and experience. Yeah. And it, it's a fantastic, fantastic, irreplaceable opportunity. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. All right. The next thing is he talks about how every single class is different, meaning sometimes you'll have a class that is firing on all cylinders. They are doing a great job. Everything's fantastic. And then you get another class and whoo, you know, like they just can't figure it out. And that is such a challenge. And Colin, I'm sure you've had this, right? You had some freshman classes. You're like, oh, let's just commission these folks right now. They're on top of it. And then other freshman classes, you're just like, oh man, you know, four years of this, right? It's tough. And it is absolutely true. It is absolutely true how every class can be different. And let's also flip that around with respect to the actual training environment. The OTS I went to is different than the OTS, the class after me. It is different than the OTS class that happened a year ago and the one that's going to be a year from now. I'm super proud of the work we did to kind of outline what OTS looks like and try to put that out there for our audience. But I want to point out that that is a snapshot in time. It changes constantly. And I find that both exhausting and refreshing at the same time. Our desire to get it right never ceases. And so we will continue to work, to needle, to change, to fix, to address every single class. So always take our advice, you know, when it comes to the commissioning sources with a little bit of that tempered flavor of, hey, I know things are going to be slightly different. Uh, but yeah, every, every class is going to be different. Yeah, for sure. And there is some of that in the operational Air Force too, that because people are constantly rotating in and out that you're going to find that some units just gel and fire on all cylinders and they're just humming along having a great time being super effective but then other times even in that same unit you know someone will rotate out and it completely changes the dynamic and all of a sudden things are no longer as awesome as they were or you get somebody else in and things were terrible and now they're freaking amazing, right? So change is your constant companion throughout your career, through the training environment, through operations, and then until you leave. And oh, by the way, the same is true while you're in the civilian world too. Yeah, we need to help you to have the skills to manage and, and work through that change. So absolutely. All right, last thing for me, and I could, I could see myself in front of my flight during Flight Commander Welcome saying this exact thing. He talked about how the learning experience is up to the student. That is 100% gospel truth. So the instructors, the staff at you know any training or education experience, they are genuinely working hard to give you a wonderful experience, but your experience is 100% up to you. You decide. I always equated it to like a feast, right? The staff, we are going to reserve the building. We are going to put the chairs and the tables out. We are going to get the fine china and the silver. We are going to prepare the meal. We are going to hire the chefs. We're going to get the wait staff. We are going to make 
everything perfect. But your dining experience is up to you. If you sit down at the table, put your feet up and refuse to eat, I can't, I can't make you eat this incredible meal, right? Like I cannot put the fork in your mouth for you. That last bit is up to you. So when he started talking about how a lot of students come to SOS with this attitude of, oh, this is going to suck. I'm just going to, you know, get through it. And that's what they get. That's because that's the experience they wanted to have. If you come in with an attitude that, you know, I can actually get something out of this. I'm going to put in a little bit of work. It will be what you make it. And I absolutely cannot emphasize that enough for our audience. If you go to a training experience and it's bad, the first place you need to look is inside. What could I have done? If it's not challenging you enough, make it harder, right? If PT is not hard enough, how do you make it harder? Do you go faster? Do you do more? Like whatever it is. So that was just such a huge, huge point of agreement between he and I and our experience. Yeah. And it makes me think about the conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago as we were reviewing our performance on this podcast over the last year, we talked about how the sharing of information on this medium uh, through these episodes is not enough because the airwaves are just wafting over you. Yeah, you're, you're making the effort to turn the episode on and listen to it. And thank you for that. But that's the effectiveness of it. Unless you as the listener, as members of this audience, as someone who is currently serving as an officer or wants to become one, makes the decision to do something about it. You have to engage with the material here on this show, in the training environment, or even in the operational Air Force. You have stuff there that has been prepared for you by other experts for your benefit. And if you don't use it, then that's on you, right? Yep. And we've talked about how individual growth is an individual responsibility. So yeah. Anyway, just he brought that up and I couldn't, I could not let this opportunity pass to bring it up again. Appreciate you taking the time to do that. There's, there's something that I want to have a discussion about he, that Adam brought up about the importance of SOS and bringing together all these captains from across the Air Force in order to enhance their air and space mindedness. Well, first of all, it, I know we just listened to it, but let's refresh our memory. What does it mean to be air minded? So the book answer, because I'm in the middle of my own PME experience, is that air-mindedness is unique, that it's power projection from a distance, that we do not view the problem sets geographically. We view them in three dimensions, in time and space. That's kind of the book answer. But I think the one that is key is that it is innovative that we are innovators and that is what makes airmen and air-mindedness unique. But is it though? Are we actually innovating on a regular basis? That's what I want to discuss. I totally can grasp this idea of air-mindedness that we are operating in actually four dimensions, the, the three dimensions of space and then the time dimension. 
and we're not geographically locked into the into the way that we think but innovating what was the last greatest last big innovation that came out of the air force i would say an rpa specifically an armed reconnaissance surveillance asset that has you know a high def camera that was a pretty big change i'm with you though when he said innovation is what makes us unique the first question i had is exactly what you did is it and and i i uh, it's something about that and it's such a huge emphasis right now and and colin you and i have been reading a book not together but we read it nearly at the same time stan mccrystal's team of teams and he talks about how for true innovation to happen you kind of have to get rid of a lot of the normal things that we associate with the military a very specific rank structure you have to get rid of this power dynamic where there's somebody at the top and then a couple people below them and a couple people below them and you have to get rid of that in order to really connect with the ideas and move at the speed of innovation and how that is the antithesis of the typical DOD military infrastructure. How, I mean, it's almost one of the first things you ever see when you hear about a new organization. Welcome to the 70th Operation Support Squadron. And then the next slide is a flow chart, an org chart. The commander, DO, first shirt, superintendent, flight commanders. And that, like, it's just, this is who we are. And Yet at the same time, our entire service was birthed out of the idea that the way people were employing air power was insufficient and inadequate. So did we just innovate once and then it's just iterations of that? I don't know. I don't have an answer for this, but I, I just, I'm not feeling it. And, and maybe that's a failure of my ability to learn and grow individually maybe it's a broader systemic issue um, but yeah i'm with you when he mentioned this i um, i knew we were going to talk about it yeah I, something that comes to my mind when we talk about the way that the air force operates is there's this idea that you that you equate efficiency with effectiveness and let me tell you what is really efficient having a step-by-step -step checklist that tells you you know, exactly what you need to do through the entire process of turning on the aircraft and operating it or maintaining it, or when building a project around a facility requirement, there's this step-by-step -step process, these boxes that you have to check to make sure that you're not going to miss any important parts of that facility and that it's going to not go over time or over budget that there's this checklist for submitting your uh, performance report or setting up your travel through dts or you know pick any other process it does not matter what it is in the air force it has some sort of checklist it has been outlined and it tells you that you have to follow these steps you cannot deviate otherwise you will break the system and it won't work right and, and we have perpetuated that concept even in our own podcast. What's one of the first things we do when we talk about an organization, an institution, or a process? We go to the guidance, right? You and I, 
when we bring up a topic, let's use the GI Bill as an example of a recent episode that we talked about. What's the first thing you and I do when we decide to do an episode, right? We start Googling and look at the joint pubs, the DOD pubs. We look at the Air Force doctorate. We look at the guidance. And if we didn't have a checklist, we build one. And then we offer it to our audience. Here is how the GI Bill works. And what we're getting at, and I think you and I are both finally realizing, is that that is going to shackle us and prevent us from innovating if that's the culture and the system that we have. So what do we do about that? Because I agree, Colin. I think there are times and places where we absolutely must have a checklist. I guarantee you, I want the people working on my aircraft to follow a very thorough task order, right? I really, really want them to follow that checklist very carefully. But if that's all we ever do, are we going to come up with the ideas that are needed for the next generation of high-end fight with the peer adversary? And I don't think it is. And so how do we do that? How do we have both? How can I have my cake and eat it too, Colin? I don't know. Yes. I, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. Where does innovation come from? Okay. Let's start there. Yeah. What is the source of innovation? And going back to Team of Teams, the, the, the book that you mentioned just a little bit ago, innovation comes from breaking down barriers between people who, who have information to share, right? putting people of disparate experiences and different responsibilities in a room together and forcing them to work together and talk. That is where innovation can begin. I'm going to check you there. I don't think we force them to talk because this is something that's, I think, really key. I can't mandate innovation. Yeah, it's and it, just like the, the feast. You can't force them to pick up the fork. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, yeah. So... I think it's a very nuanced thing and I think you're totally right. But instead of forcing it and like demanding it and saying, we will innovate 28% this year, baloney. Like you can't, you can't do that. You have to create a culture where people want to do that and have the power to do so. And have something that's motivating them to innovate. That there is a common goal. There's something that they are all working toward that focuses their attention so that they will make the choice to share information in order to achieve that common end. Yeah. If I think back to, you know, some of the periods in our country's history where the most amount of innovation happened, uh, I like to think of the space program and the space race and getting to the moon. They invented metals that didn't exist. I mean, they were innovating at alarming rates. Yet, they weren't forced to, they just had a really important goal. Like you said, they had a motivation. They had an objective that they were collectively working toward. They even had a very strict structure, right? They're, you know, have to follow process. You have to follow checklists. Space is dangerous. People die. Like, you, you know, this is very similar, yet they were able to innovate. And, and I wonder how we can do both. And so it's definitely something that I'm intrigued by. That, that book, Team of Teams, I know we mentioned a few times, go read it. Audience, it will change the way you think about how we are organized, how we work with other organizations and groups. And it's definitely something that's given me a lot to think about. Well, I think that there's something very important to mention that we haven't touched on yet. And that is the role of the leader 
in the process of innovation. That the leader, the, be it the officer, be it the, the senior NCO, be it the lowest ranking airman, the leader has to foster a culture and an environment wherein this innovation can happen. That they are going to provide that feast again. There it is. There, here are all the things that you need. Now, the rest of you make the choice to innovate, to share information, to collaborate on the problem set that's before us. The leader or leaders have to consciously make that decision to create that environment. And that's actually a really hard thing to do because you have to get out of your own way. Yeah, you have to let go. I think the model that we have in our mind is that leadership is me. Leadership is me doing stuff. And I hadn't connected these two before, but it isn't you doing stuff. It's you enabling those who can to do. You are one freaking human being. And if you think that all the good ideas that are ever going to happen in the world are going to come out of your two hemispheres up there, you are wrong. It simply isn't going to happen. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have good ideas. It doesn't mean you can't innovate. But the true source is the other people in the room. And your job as leaders, like you said, create the environment where that can happen. Really hard thing to do. But you know what? Adam in his interview gave us recommendations on how we can do that. And that's where I want to go next because he's a historian and he pointed out how important it is that as leaders, you learn from those who have gone before us and seen where they have been innovative, where they have fostered a, a culture of innovation and, and success and collaboration and learn from their decision-making process so that you can then apply it today and tomorrow. How important is that lesson there? I, that's why we still have historians, because it's crucial. You know, former Secretary of Defense Mattis said that he never encountered a problem that he hadn't already decided how he would deal with it because of his reading, because of his study of history. You know, can you imagine being confronted with a challenge and going like, oh, yeah, I got a model for that. That's powerful. That's super powerful. Yeah. So on that note, go check out Adam's podcast, 7 a.m. History, as well as the many other great options that are out there. Dan Carlin, Patrick Wyman, go check out a book from the library. Just walk the history aisle and pull something out. And read it with the intent to learn from the author or the people that are presented there about their decision-making process so that you can have that model ready for the future when you come up against it. Because you will. It is going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It, this will sound like a tangent, but I saw my boss the other day wearing acid wash jeans. And I thought to myself, wow, everything is old and new again, right? These things will come around again. The same types of problems, the same situations. Yes, with different technology, with different geopolitical circumstances, but the principles that underlie them will be the same. And that's our job. 
that's our job is to be ready for that. Yeah. And funny how we just came full circle about innovating and that change is constant and you need to be ready for it. But at the same time, there's nothing new under the sun that if you look back in history, same people, different names, right? Same situations, different dates on the calendar. So it, it's just this dichotomy that everything is old and new at the same time. Everything is innovating yet staying the, the same. And you have to be able to navigate that, be that dynamic leader who is able to be successful in all of it. No pressure, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, and no pressure, you know, the, the fate of the world rests on your shoulders. So don't screw it up. <laughs> awesome stuff, Colin. Really enjoyed the interview with Adam. Anything else before we wrap up today? I just want to say thanks to our audience for tuning in today, listening to this episode. And if you have found value in the discussion that we had in the interview with Adam uh, here in our commentary or any thoughts that you may have had, we encourage you to share those with us in the Heritage Room, engage with us on social media through our email, but most importantly, share it with somebody in your sphere of influence. Be a leader, develop more leaders, and help others to learn what you have learned. Good stuff. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Engineering.